During the month of October, Science Moab is producing a new show each week featuring scientists that have been recipients of the Canyonlands Natural History Association Discovery Pool Grants for 2023. Canyonlands Natural History Association is a nonprofit organization which exists solely to assist the National Park Service, the U.S. Forest Service, and the Bureau of Land Management in their education and visitor efforts. The Discovery Pool Research Grant Program was established by CNHA to encourage and provide funding for research partnerships between qualified scientists and CNHA's federal agency partners in southeastern Utah. Since its inception in 2007, CNHA's Discovery Pool has awarded $800,000 in grants. The research for today's episode was partially funded by the Discovery Pool. This is Science Moab a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about wildland fire and the potential for recovery of certain ecosystems. It's a good show. Stay tuned. There's not a very good understanding of pinion juniper recovery after fire. It's generally thought that it doesn't come back very well. Things are shifting, which we pretty well know there's some real clear indicators that things are not as they used to be and that we're on a a different trajectory. So that's part of the challenge and and fun of being an ecologist is figuring out what that means for the future and, you know, is there anything that we can do to preserve and protect species and ecosystems that we find really important and valuable. Today we are talking with ecologist Rebecca Fingerhiggins, whose study of dryland ecosystems has taken her from the tundra of Greenland to the deserts of southeast Utah. Rebecca currently works with the U.S. Geological Survey in Moab as part of the Southwest Biological Science Center. Today we are talking about ecological recovery from fire, and more specifically, the recovery of pinyon juniper woodlands following the Pack Creek Fire of 2021. The Pack Creek Fire broke out in early June of 2021. It was a warm June day here in Moab, and some people decided to have a campfire that they didn't extinguish, which then smoldered and caught on to the cottonwoods in the Pack Creek day use area. And then it burned sort of in that ranch area where Pack Creek Ranch is located, and then it got really hot and really windy. And that's where the fire really took off. So in the course of a couple days, it spread over 5,000 acres, which was really just mostly in a 24-hour period. So really fast, really hot fire. And then another big gust of wind kind of pushed it up and over Geyser Pass for another about 3,000 acres. So in total, the fire burned just shy of 9,000 acres. I definitely felt a vibe throughout the whole community that there was kind of this mourning and this real sadness with the Pack Creek Fire. Moab is actually this beautiful science hub where we have some federal agencies, we have uh, Utah State University, and then awesome nonprofits like Rim to Rim Restoration. So a bunch of us got together from the USGS as well as the U.S. Forest Service and partnerships with people at the BLM as well. And we just wanted to know what could we learn from this fire and what could we help with? So what parts of the fire or restoration could we stand in and help with? And so that's kind of where this whole idea originally came from, was sort of this series of workshops that were led by, you know, scientists that were interested in this fire, interested in understanding what does it mean for these local important ecosystems and just what does it mean literally for this this mountain system that's right in our backyard. Nice. And uh, more specifically, you were looking at the pinion 
opinion, Juniper Recovery. In a ideal world, what what would be the response of a pinyon juniper forest following a pretty catastrophic fire? I mean, do they thrive after fire normally? Uh, not, not necessarily. So um, we do have some colleagues and other researchers at the USGS led by Sasha Reed, our good friend, as well as actually Michaela Phillips, who's now at the USGS in Hawaii, and some other uh, great researchers have been working with a team at a Mesa Verde where they've been tracking a series of pinion juniper fires that have occurred there. And you don't see a lot of recruitment that usually comes after these pinion juniper forests. So there are systems that, unlike Ponderosa and kind of more alpine systems that have a pretty good adaptation to regenerate after fire, we don't necessarily see that in pinion juniper systems. And on top of that, there's always this issue of climate change, where there's some concern throughout the Southwest that climate change might be kind of shifting what we'd call a climatic envelope. So sort of that Goldilocks criteria that pinion juniper need to thrive, where it might be getting a little bit too hot, a little bit too dry, which would make pinion juniper recruitment all that much harder. So there's a couple things you guys wanted to try with the the pinion juniper to see if they could recover faster. Can you explain what those couple things are? Yeah, so the pinion, so pinion juniper kind of policy and how pinion juniper are seen in the U.S. public lands sphere is is pretty complex because you kind of have this dualism or almost this paradox where there's concern from ecologists that are seeing uh, disturbance events coming like fire or insect outbreak as a response to drought that is killing back and, and killing a large amount of these trees and they're having a hard time recruiting. On the other hand, fire suppression policy in the U.S. has led to pinion juniper spreading into other forests and making them thicker and vulnerable to more intense fires and that's particularly true here with ponderosa forests where there's been this need to cull back some of the pinion juniper so on public lands federal agencies and land managers have been doing both of trying to remove pinion juniper from encroaching but also supporting regeneration after fire so it's this really complex seesaw that's seen with pinion juniper So on that note, one of the key components that we looked at with this project is that the Forest Service prior to the Pack Creek Fire, so as early as the 1980s and 1970s, had actually cleared some of the pinion juniper through a process we call chaining, where basically they anchor one large chain on one side and then drive it with like a bulldozer on the other and kind of just knock down all the trees. And so that's a practice to help with fire mitigation. So if it does burn, it doesn't burn as hotly, it doesn't burn as intensely, so you'll have a higher rate of tree survival. And the other reason for doing that was really for grazing and rangeland management. So the idea that if you have too many trees in an area, that's going to cut back on the suitable habitat for grazing animals like cattle and some of the native ungulates as well. One of the focuses of the study was how does the thinning that was previously done by a federal agency, by the U.S. Forest Service, how does that impact this post-fire recovery? So that was one of the things that we really wanted to look at directly of of saying how does management and fire kind of combined impact the future of pinion juniper forests. How did you go about testing if this thinning or chaining of a lot of the pinion juniper, did it help in recovery 
after the fire. How did you test that? The short answer to that is we haven't been able to test it fully yet just because the time for these forests to recover takes a long time. What we were able to do was to go in in the fall of 2021 and start collecting data of what do we see immediately after fire, sort of those baseline measurements. So one of the things that we did see immediately after the fire and the big differences between these areas that had previously been chained and the areas that hadn't is that in the areas that had been chained or I really should say managed by the Forest Service previously, there was a lot more wheatgrass and plants that were actually not native to the area, but intentionally planted by the Forest Service to improve upon the forage quality. And so I went out with Barb Smith, who's the wildlife biologist for the Manti LaSalle district and based out of Moab. And you know she said that the signs of these wheat grasses was a really good way of, amongst these charred pinion juniper stumps, to tell the difference between where previous management had occurred and where it had not. So it's actually this legacy of trying to suppress or replace some of the thicker pinion juniper with more grass species that was still evident. So I guess one of the things that we've also been interested in is in order to have tree recruitment, you need to have enough space on the ground that those trees have a chance of making it to seedlings, to saplings. And so one of the other focuses of our study has been considering what's the current ground cover now. So measuring those grasses that have been purposely seeded by the Forest Service can be really important, we think, on the success of, of tree seedlings moving forward. So that's what, something that we want to continue to monitor. Okay. So yeah, you've got, I mean, it's going to be a while before you see what kind of regrowth there is in, in the pinyon juniper. But given the increasing amount of drought and given this fire and fires elsewhere in in these same environments, are there any instances where the pinyon juniper forest will just say, yeah, we've had enough and they'll won't come back and they'll just maybe go up in elevation? Yeah, I think that's exactly what we're sort of hypothesizing could happen with this fire. So instead of seeing, you know, even 100 years from now, we might not see real recovery of the pinion juniper, but we could see sagebrush coming in from these lower elevations. We often can think about these oak shrubs on the mountainsides in the LaSalle's, and and they'll probably continue to do very well. They're fast growing, so we could see a spread of oak species or oak cover. So it could be that the pinion juniper move up to higher elevations, but it could also be that they can't really compete up there as well because then they're competing with other species like aspens that are super yeah, fast and Like growing. you said, you need the room. Yeah, so you if, need the room. If they can't remove up into a place that wasn't burned. Right. It could just be they get squeezed out. So that's that's definitely a concern, and that's something that, that makes studying pinion junipers really important to do right now as we're seeing rapid climate change, as we're seeing these other forces like forest fire and even, you know, urban urban encroachment and development um, is impacting a lot of pinyon forests. In a healthy pinyon juniper forest, and of course, given the day and age when we are in drought, if a fire came along, I mean, what would be the the normal response if there was no pre-thinning, if you didn't do any, go out there on the land and try to help seed or anything like that? What, is there a standard kind of recovery of these, these? 
It's hard to say. Humans have been on this landscape for a really long time, and there's pretty good evidence that indigenous communities have been using fire for a really long time. And if you've talked to tribal partners in the area, they'll talk that these pinyon juniper communities are really this, this important being in their culture. So there's been fire management for a super long time. So it's hard to kind of go back before any humans were here to know what things would look like without any sort of what we would put a destructive <laughs> behavior. You know, one thing that pinion juniper forests have been pretty good at is withstanding low-grade fires. So it's also sort of the magnitude of the fire yeah. where they can withstand to a certain level, a low-level kind of ground fire, as long as it doesn't get too hot and too blazing up in the crown and if the trees are spaced out enough. So often when I think of sort of a, a healthy with air quotes, healthy opinion juniper forest, you know, the trees would be decently spaced out. And so part of that is sort of this natural fire break and and a way for these trees to live with fire without necessarily being fire adapted in the same way that we'd think about, you know, lodgepole or, or ponderosa pine that can really like scar and withstand fire. As time goes on and you are out, you know, collecting data what data are you looking for to kind of assess the recovery of these, these forests? So right now, it's really the, the small plants that are coming back that we're thinking about more than the trees. It's just, you know, it's only been two years. It's just really not enough time to see really even the seedlings. They're so itty-bitty at this point. So a lot of the project working with the CNHA has focused on these smaller kind of flowering plants, some of the shrubs and what we'd call early successional species. So things that can grow quickly that are moving in. So grasses and flowers and small shrubs. After the fire, there was also, you know, immediate action on part of the Forest Service and rim to rim restoration. So there also was some seeding that occurred of wildflower species and so that was part of our study design too was to see how effective was the seed mix that the forest service put down and just getting numbers to provide to the forest service so they have an idea of when they're spending a lot of money on post-fire seeding you know how much of that seed is actually turning into plants so when we went back this year you know the things we were collecting data on was what plants were there, what was the estimate of kind of their total makeup on the ground, and did we see a difference between plots that had this seed mix place on it and those that hadn't. Another big concern post-fire is erosion, and you know we saw that in Moab pretty clearly. Immediately after the fire, we had massive floods along Pack Creek, and there's countless dramatic videos of this black sludge coming towards town. So we've also put in some rock structures to see if that would help with cross-slope erosion to see if you'd get more plant species growing where we had some erosion breaks. And then we also did collect measurements just on the erosion potential of these soils, which is pretty simple technique. You just collect little chunks of soil, you dip it in water and see if those soil aggregates can stick together or if they would just dissolve with a big monsoon storm. Yeah. And I mean, did you find any plots that for some reason or another had nothing growing on them? Or are they all reju- rejuvenated in some way? There were fewer plots than I would 
think that had nothing. I think it was in the really rocky slopes okay. and okay. Soil, sites where there just wasn't as much soil. It was actually a really pleasant surprise, and I think it's largely thanks to this very wet spring. The burn scar this spring was beautiful. Yeah. Uh, the number of flowers was spectacular, and a lot of the seed mix that was put down d- seemed to have worked. It seemed to have been really effective in creating a whole collage of beautiful flowers. So, you know, you had purple bee plants and penstemons and yellow sunflowers, and it was really beautiful. But with those beautiful flowers, you also get, you know, pollinators and other components of the ecosystem that can be really helpful. So it's one of those things that looks promising, and we want to have the data to support that, to encourage the Forest Service to do recovery methods that work and to know when it's being effective and where it's being effective. Right. And I imagine that like the seed, that, that kind of a seed mix right after fire is just, it's, is also helping erosion. I mean, but until say larger plants can seed and is that true or is it just to kind of look good? <laughs> um, I think it does help with erosion, okay. just getting, getting plants down, getting roots established. Yeah. That will help with erosion. Some of it's just a matter of time. That yeah. After a fire, you kind of need things to settle down. And it's, it's really the, the unsung heroes of ecology, the microbes that are probably helping the most to kind of glue those soils together and, yeah. and help with erosion. But it's a combination. Yeah. You know, the, the faster you can kind of get that ecological machine running the better i mean there's also a concern of this kind of epic battle occurring between non-native species and native species so another main reason kind of driving the decisions to put seed down after a fire is to give native plants an advantage over non-native species so the non-native species that we're thinking about here in particular is often cheatgrass Cheatgrass is a non-native annual plant, meaning that it emerges from seed once and sometimes even twice a year. It can come back, can come in the spring and then come back again after the monsoons. So it's a pretty good competitor out here and can establish, especially in disturb sites, pretty well. So being able to get in native grass species as well as other native annual plants, we're hoping that those can get a jump on some of these non-natives that are less desirable so that's another reason to, to want to seed after fire. Status of the project now is, where are you? <laughs> What's going on? Essentially, it's definitely an ongoing project. Yeah. Fire recovery is never a quick thing. So it's nice to collect early data and then revisit it. So I'd say we have a couple different things going on. So. Okay, one part of the pro- project was funded by CNHA, and that is more or less complete, but we'd be happy to revisit it if we have additional time and funding. And that was really just looking at the efficacy of this seed mix that was bought by the Forest Service and to see if there was a difference if this seed mix was put in places that were previously thinned by the Forest Service and then planted with that non-native forage wheatgrass versus plants that didn't see a thinning and so have less of that, less or none of that wheatgrass. So that data was collected this year in June. I went out and hiked around the LaSalle's from between about 7,000 to 9,000 feet, so the lower elevation parts of the fire. 
and went out with you know our technicians from the USGS as well as interns from Utah State University and help from rim to rim restoration and collected data as like what we discussed before. So just getting an idea of what plants emerged, what's their kind of average cover, how stable are the soils, and then taking pictures. And then that will ultimately be worked up and then we'll also provide results to CNHA and make them available to the Forest Service as well. And then ideally that would also go into either a scientific publication and then I'm also working with uh, Dr. Brooke Osborne, who's faculty at Utah State University, and she's using that in some of her curriculum as well. So it's also being used as like a teaching module and an example of kind of the complexities of natural resource management. The seeding that was done by the Forest Service, a bulk of that was placed by volunteers. So it was community members that cared about this forest, that were mourning the loss of the forest, and wanted to help give back. And that was something that I think was really special, too, about the Moab community and really incentivized wanting to do research here. Is It's right in our backyard. It's, it is where we go in the summer to escape the heat. It's where we go in the winter to play in the snow. You know, the LaSalle's are, are literally our, our lifeline of water and uh, recreation and, and all kinds of things. It's, it's been really interesting to be a part of this. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.